Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi, and welcome to ODI Friday's lunchtime lecture. I'm your host today, Josh Dario, a senior consultant here at the ODI. Today, you will have the distinct pleasure of hearing from Stephanie Langenig, a researcher in the Departments of Politics at Birkbeck University of London and a senior data scientist in public policy at ICF International, as well as Ben Worthy, a senior lecturer in politics at Birkbeck College. Their topic today is an important one and one that is on the minds of many people. Does more data make for better politics? I will be moderating a Q&A session at the end, so feel free to type your questions into the chat and I will get to them during the Q&A session after the talk. Uh, people can also ask questions and make comments using hashtag ODA Fridays on Twitter. Uh, so in the chat, feel free to introduce yourself uh, if you'd like to tell us where you're watching from. Uh, we're also recording this for YouTube, so we ask that you keep yourself muted with your video off uh, until you have been asked to read your question. So without further ado, here's Stephanie and Ben. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for uh, having us here. Just bear with me. I'll uh, put up the slides. Okay, so uh, thanks for asking us here for the lunchtime lecture. Uh, myself and Stephanie have been working on this Leverhulme Trust Fund project for the past uh, year and a half. And it concerns the way in which people are using new data and new platforms to monitor and watch what people in parliament are doing. So we thought we'd cut to the kind of central question of the whole project, which is, does more data make for better democracy? We still have some time to run on the project. So any thoughts, ideas, or even criticisms that you have would be very, very welcome. Um, in addition to that, I've posted into the chat a survey. So if anybody has actually used parliament data, it would be wonderful if you could fill it out. So just to explain where we're coming from, uh, there's a body of, of theory around democracy that argues that democracy itself is changing. It's moving away from the old ideas of elections and kind of periodic occasional interest by the public and representation to this label that's been, been bandied around as monetary democracy. This is the idea that new technology means that different groups and people can continuously watch what politicians are doing all of the time. Now, there's a debate as to whether this is a good and a bad thing, of course. On the one hand, it makes politicians more accountable. It could also make them possibly behave better if they know they're being watched. But on the other hand, uh, it could cause muckraking, uh, distrust and kind of unfairness in terms of how it's covered. So in this presentation, I, I want us to, to talk to three sort of questions. What data sources are there? And the implicit hidden question there, what data sources are there not? Who is using them? Because this is crucial. And then what impact it's having? So I'm going to talk to these first two questions. And then I'm going to hand over to Stephanie. Just to give you some sense of um, how we're finding this out, we're using a whole range of methods. And I'm happy to talk about these uh, afterwards. We're using uh, interviews, analysis of both media and social media, a series of case studies, a survey of people who've used the data, um, as well as some living labs and experiments. So question one, what data sources are there for people to use? Well, some of these you'll be familiar with. There's data direct from Parliament, of course, Hansard, the record of debates, data for the House of Lords on attendance, of course, data about how MPs have voted, and a, a series of apps, including the Commons Votes apps, where you can, you can watch what happens. Alongside this, there's, there's data from third parties, uh, you're very 
probably familiar with they work for you but also sites like public whip which tells you if a mp or a member of the house of lords has um rebelled against their own party's disciplinary instructions for how they vote and then on top of this a whole range of formal bodies the independent parliamentary standards authority regularly publishes data on mp's expenses We've also got a whole set of legal tools. You can make a Freedom Information request. The Freedom Information Act covers both houses of parliament um, to a certain extent. And things like the Register of Interests, where you can take a look and find out um, what interests uh, MPs and peers have declared and things like their outside earnings. The data has also created a whole set of spin-offs and experiments. Here's MPs Expenses Info. It works like you imagine it would. You type in uh, the constituency, postcode or the name of an MP. You can look at individual MPs and their expenses or also cross compare them. And this site's very careful to be clear about things like geography, because of course the MP for Shetlands and Orkney would have a very different set of travel expenses uh, than the MP for Islington. And down there in the corner, we've got uh, the wonderful Parliament Wiki Edits, uh, which is a bot that tells us every time a computer with a parliamentary IP address makes a change to Wikipedia. Now, of course, we don't know who's making that change, but lots of the time when you take a look at it, you can take a, a pretty reasonable guess. But as well as what sources are there, it's important to think about what we don't know. And there's lots of things we don't know and don't have any data about MPs' activities. So we don't actually have any official data about how MPs are told how to vote. It has to be inferred or leaked. Quite rightly, a lot of what MPs do in their constituencies is protected by privacy, such as communications. But we also don't know things like systematically how many surgeries are MPs having in their constituency. Given that constituency work takes up so much of what MPs do, it's quite an important gap. Alongside this, probably most interestingly, is lobbying. Uh, the UK does have a lobbying register where lobbyists have to transparently uh, record their activities. But uh, it only covers particular lobbyists and uh, rather surprisingly, it doesn't cover the House of Parliament at all. So if you want to know what sort of lobbying goes on, it normally takes a kind of expose of the kind we see in the newspapers or an indirect look through the register of interests or a freedom information request for things like who MPs have been hiring room for in Parliament. So it's important to remember as we go through this that, that the data that exists gives us a very particular and partial view of what's happening in Parliament. And it could well overemphasize certain activities like voting and obscure and hide other activities like what MPs do in their constituencies. So on to the second big question, who is using uh, the data? Well, there's a kind of mixture between the usual suspects and the not quite so usual suspects. Some of the groups you'd imagine use it would be journalists, of course, national journalists, investigative journalists, but interestingly, local and regional journalists who do kind of regional comparisons of how MPs voted or their expenses. It's actually the region and the local angle that MPs seem to fear far more than the national. Of course, people who are running against an MP as an opposition candidate uh, really love a good dig in their voting record and their expenses. As you can imagine, you have local parties watching their own MP and what they're doing and campaigners, both reformers and also, as you can see from the example, they're single issue uh, campaigners. Alongside it, there's some, some other groups that I, I wasn't quite expecting as we did this study. Academics play quite a big role in uh, using and analysing data. I'd flag up Meg Russell's work at UCL where she used voting records to um, analyse which MP, which group of MPs really blocked Brexit under Theresa May. Uh, MPs 
and they're members of staff. Uh, again, a very interesting group. My society estimate they account for about 2% of all the searches on their work for you, which is quite a lot given there's only 650 uh, MPs. How do they use it? Well, it seems they use it both to watch how they're doing themselves, um, but also um, to watch opponents. And this leaves us with the, with the big question of the public as well, and to what extent they're using uh, this data. So it seems like, of course, a small group of members of the public are engaged and involved using the sites, using the apps, using data. Um, in some of the examples we've looked into, there's been some interesting participatory kind of experiments. Uh, just after the MPs' expenses scandal, The Guardian created this platform where uh, members of the public were encouraged to do their own searches to see if they could flag up anything interesting or odd. And of course, the wider public hear about this through narratives in the media, uh, on social media, and also when it becomes a wider campaign, when, for example, an issue exposed by data then becomes an e-petition. So just finally on the patterns of use, and then I'll hand over to Stephanie. Um, it's interesting, the kind of occurrences of how it's used. There's regular monitoring through elections, um, whenever there's uh, the possibility of MPs getting the pay rise, for example, or whenever new members are appointed to the House of Lords, both of these activities always generate controversy, or when data is released. There's irregular monitoring whenever there's a scandal that attracts a lot of attention or controversial votes, as we saw time after time um, with Brexit. It's interesting that the data can be used to focus on one particular individual um, to a local level or to the whole institution. It can focus on groups, whether regional groups or focus on particular parties. It sometimes leads to outcries and sometimes leads to sort of direct accountability, but that's a little less often. And you won't be surprised to know that most of the monitoring focuses on the House of Commons and the elected part um, with much less interest on the House of Lords. And with that, I shall hand over to Stephanie. Thanks, Ben. Um, if you want to jump to the next slide, um, Ben has done a really nice job of setting the stage for the data that we're using and um, the data that's out there. And so we want to talk a little bit about that third question that he spoke of, which was, um, what's the impact? What are we seeing coming out of our findings with all of these data? And so I'll talk about that here. And I'll start with one of the most salient examples, which are the case of MPs expenses. Um, data played a really key role in this. And as I think most of you will probably know, there was a huge scandal in 2009 around MPs expenses and the way money was being spent. And for some context, essentially the government didn't want to support MPs pay rises for a few reasons, some of them obvious, but what they did to get around this was they set up an additional cost allowance system so that MPs could, could get reimbursed and such for traveling to and from London. Um, over time, the lines became blurry about how those expenses were being allocated, what was being claimed. Um, and, you know, essentially what happened was there was no enforcement mechanism put in place and um, MPs, you know, started getting away with claiming expenses for things they maybe shouldn't have. And so um, what happened, you know, leading up to the scandal in 2009 was a, a chain of events beginning with freedom of information requests, um, which drew in various regulators and legal bodies that got involved. And it ended with a leak to the press in which the, the creation of IPSA occurred, so this monetary institution to track what MPs were doing basically, and a host of participatory tools came out of that. Um, and so the scandal and the subsequent chain of events that occurred really highlighted the process and the impact of monitoring um, and really showed that one triggering event can create just this monetary ecosystem in a lot of ways. And what we're seeing in our own research is that news media articles and Twitter data have a steady drip uh, of this, this 
idea of MPs expenses that can be focused around one issue, but are also revelatory around scandals like Ben noted, and there's academic analysis. So there really has been some staying power with this. And so this led to a series of changes. Um, the Recall Act in 2015 is one uh, instance of that, but also it just led to greater monitoring. Like I said, um, just generally in the long term, um, it really showed how powerful and expansive monetary democracy can be. Um, in terms of institutional change, there were a set of direct reforms, so IPSA is one of those, um, and indirect changes around select committees and recalls and e-petitions. Um, in the short term, some MPs resigned and stepped down, um, and we've seen this shift in behavior in the way MPs are monitoring themselves or, or monitoring others. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we ask ourselves is, does the publication of this data mean it's no longer controversial? Well, Ian Kennedy, who's the former IPSA boss, would argue that publishing this data meant that no, it, it's not controversial anymore because it's out there in the open, um, which is at least partially true to a degree. However, there's evidence from IPSA surveys of, of MPs over time that uh, a lot of MPs are reluctant to claim certain expenses out of worry about this transparency. So there's certainly been an impact from the MPs expenses that we very much feel today in this monetary environment. Uh, next slide, please. And so another way in which we track and look at what lawmakers are doing are voting records. And, and some of you may use these yourselves um, and there's copious data around these and it's really, really accessible. And so there are a few ways in which we use them. And the most prominent is to just better understand holding politicians to account to see how they voted, uh, to question or expose scandals or hypocrisy, for example, and also to use them as a shortcut or a benchmark for performance. Um, and so they can be analyzed at the individual level, but also at the group or party level. And so this picture on the slide show Keir Starmer's climate score as calculated by the UK Youth uh, Climate Coalition website which essentially tracks climate related votes and whether MPs voted for or against or just abstained on a number of different climate related issues. And what they do is they aggregate this score to, to create it um, for each lawmaker. So this is an example of using voting data for the individual level monitoring. Whereas um, something like Brexit is a really excellent example of, of monitoring at the group level or the partisan level, for example, where um, MPs were split uh, in the case of leaving the EU. And we really saw this manifest with the Conservative Party in voting and people were really plugged in and paying attention to that. And so one of the things we ask is, well, does it have an effect? And I think this is a bit of a mixed bag, right? It, it definitely depends on the issue at hand, how salient the issue is, um, is public opinion tuned into it. But um, Brexit is a really, really clear example of, of seeing these voting record data have some sort of impact. And like with expenses, we saw across the board, people using them every day just to understand what was going on in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of democratic narratives, we also saw, you know, for the last few years, data, you know, voting data on key Brexit votes helped create a narrative that Parliament was blocking the will of the people. Um, and while this wasn't strictly true, it was definitely a powerful message that was used by both Theresa May and Boris Johnson to help get Brexit done. And then in terms of institutional change, we saw things like this election become a reality, right? The conservatives um, started you know, using their local parties to purge members who wanted to remain, and then the national party stepped in and finished that up. And so those are very kind of tangible things we saw come out of this with voting records data. Uh, next slide, please. So to continue this discussion of impacts, um, we also wanted to understand if you know, MPs think it matter. And one of the ways we know that they think it does is because they complain about it. And so what you can see here on this slide is a letter um, addressed to Robert Largan, who's an MP from They Work For You. 
Um, and he wrote them about how they were portraying his climate record on their website. And essentially what happened is a group of conservative MPs publicly complained not once but twice about how their voting record was showing up. Um, and this just shows that they're tuned in, they're watching these voting record data with, with a close eye sometimes, um, and the self-monitoring seems to hold these lawmakers to account. Um, and just the idea of being watched makes them wary of their voting and their behavior, which is a really interesting finding. And so we've also seen this in our Twitter data that we've collected and, and you know, on high visibility issues in particular, lawmakers are coming out and they're justifying or apologizing even for their voting behavior because that data is out there and people are accessing it and calling them out on it. And so it's really interesting to watch that play out. Um, these changes can trigger things when it comes to voting. And so, you know, Ben showed the, the Sun lazy MP list from 2013. And this was ultimately pulled and, and reviewed because it unfairly targeted female MPs. Um, you know, Lucy Powell is an example who made this top 10 list because she was caring for a newborn. But essentially, even though it had that negative side to it and the data didn't show everything that it possibly could have, it was, you know, taken out of context. It ultimately led to a greater push for the proxy voting reform in 2019. And so this kind of gets at the question of whether these data are overemphasizing votes and the importance. You know, the, the Sun article is an instance of the voting records being taken out of context or not contextualized enough, or the narrative that's provided by the media, for example, making a mountain out of a molehill, so to speak. Uh, next slide, please. So we wanted to see what MPs thought about this. And so we recently launched a short survey to try to gauge perceptions of these monetary data and tools and, and sort of this new environment in which they're operating. Um, YouGov completed this for us at the end of January, beginning of February. It's a representative sample of 101 lawmakers. Um, I'm happy to talk about that methodology in the Q&A if you'd like, but um, the results were really interesting. And so the first question we asked was, what effect, if any, do you think websites such as these, so they work for you, for example, have on how you work in your role as an MP? And as you'll see in these bar charts, um, MPs were more likely to think that websites such as They Work For You have a negative effect on their own work rather than a positive effect. And labor MPs were more likely to have a positive view than negative, whereas conservative MPs were more likely to take a negative view. So that, that's really interesting. Um, and if you'll go to the next slide, we asked another question. So what effect, if any, do you think that websites such as these have on the work of MPs in general? And respondents were slightly more positive on this question. However, the proportion um, taking a negative view still outnumbers that of the positive view. And again, labor MPs were more positive about this space than were the conservative counterparts. And the S&P on both questions fell somewhere in between. We also gave MPs the opportunity to provide some additional commentary um, in the form of free text responses. And we received some good feedback there. And so for those MPs who had a positive view about the websites, they, they really praise the accountability and the transparency that they bring. Whereas those who had negative views criticized them as biased and oversimplistic, which really jives with what we've seen on Twitter um, and the letters that we just showed you from MPs and things like that. Um, and there were also some regional and cohort and gender differences that um, I'm happy to, to discuss as well in the Q&A if we have some time. All right, next slide. So the final piece that I wanna talk about is the House of Lords and Ben touched on this a little bit earlier, but we combined a lot of our different things here and, and walked away with a few primary findings. And so the Lords is different because there's no real democratic connection in the way that we think of it because of this hereditary component, all the things that are related to the House of Lords get caught up in questions of reform and change. Um, and so things that are relatively minor in scope um, or are only being watched by you know, savvy consumers of parliaments like us, 
um, like appointments and expenses and hereditary by-elections, for example, are symbolic um, of how the House of Lords is kind of a, what we like to call self-perpetuating existential crisis. And it feeds into these bigger issues around democracy and gender and representation, because a lot of people don't really understand what these things mean. All they know is, you know, it's outdated, it doesn't make sense to us, and they don't look like us. And so there's a focus on controversy around these issues. And, and we've seen this playing out in the media coding that we've done and some of the case studies that we've done, where the discussion is squarely focused on reform and, and legitimacy. Is it a legitimate institution? And we found that people aren't really you know, up in arms about the procedures that are happening and the data around that, but rather they simply see the entire institution, like I said, is archaic and out of touch. And oftentimes they're calling for its complete abolishment. Um, and so even if they get a glimpse of the data, you know, they're more upset about the idea that it, it needs to be reformed, removed, or it doesn't make sense. Um, and we've also done some analysis on participation and on, on expenses. And so even though the House of Lords gets a bad rap, um, what we found in our preliminary analysis using data, both from Parliament and data that we had to request from the external comms office, is that maybe, you know, it's not as bad as we thought. There was this narrative in the media about, you know, Lords, you know, claiming more in expenses during COVID or not showing up as much. And, and we don't see that in the data that we're using. And so the big takeaway is that the data aren't always as they seem, particularly as they pertain to the House of Lords. Um, so next slide, please. Just to kind of wrap up, does, does more data make for better democracy to kind of bring this all back together? So data-driven democracy does definitely have its positive. You know, we're certainly more informed about what's being done directly or indirectly. We are inundated with information. You know, it's at our fingertips. It's at the click of a button, which is a really amazing thing. And even if we can't find what we need the first time around, oftentimes with a little bit more digging, we, we find what we need, which is great. Um, it's created benchmarks for performance that we can use to hold lawmakers to account, and it gives us shortcuts to better understand political activity. You know, government is really complex and it's hard to understand sometimes, but with the tools that, you know, Ben has showed earlier, it's a lot easier to make that happen. Um, and politicians may be, behave better, you know, if they're being watched. And we found and presented evidence today that, you know, sometimes they'll take to Twitter and to the media to you know, display humility and apologize for something, or at the very least justify or explain their behavior like we saw with voting records. On the flip side of that, there's also the potential for democratic distortion, of course. So we know that it doesn't always give a full picture. The Sun article was a, an instance of that. Um, expenses and attendance data in the House of Lords is another example of that. Um, and we also found that MPs felt that way with their own voting records and such in our survey with YouGov. And it does add to the narrative about politics, whether for better or for worse, but it does reinforce some of these old narratives about politicians being unrepresentative, greedy, out of touch, you name it. And then finally, is it counterproductive? You know, this new space is chaotic and it's unpredictable and surveillance is continuous at all times and it's wider than any physical watching that we knew in the past and data is really driving that. And so one question that, you know, is arising in our case is, are lawmakers choosing to do this behavior behind closed doors? Are we able to monitor it? How is it changing their behavior? And, and things like that. And so it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, so to speak. Um, next slide, please. Okay, well, I think that's it. But, uh, you know, as you can see from the bullet points here, you know, any examples or ideas um, we welcome and uh, we'd love to take some questions if you have them. Great, thanks so much.
Ben and Stephanie. That was a, a really, really interesting talk. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but being the generous host I am, I will see if uh, others would like to ask some first. I see my colleague Hannah has one in the chat right now. Uh, and before I read this, just want to remind everyone, uh, feel free to uh, write them in the chat. Uh, and if you don't want to speak them out loud, uh, I'm happy to read them for you. Uh, so Hannah, would you like to say yours? Yeah, sorry, I muscled in there early. Um, so uh, that's really interesting. Thank you. I, I'm I'm quite interested in your specific work, the two of you, why you're working together on this, on and um, why you're doing this project, and what you're hoping to to get out of it at the end. Ben, I'll let you take that one. Okay, so uh, the origins of of, of this project, uh, trying to think it through, was actually in. Uh, the thing that I spent quite a lot of time studying uh, was the Freedom of Information Act. And the more I studied it, the more the issue of transparency as a wider concept became really important and interesting. And the problem was that Freedom of Information looks quite old compared with some of the newer things that are happening. And that got me interested in what these other uh, sources of data and these other kind of online portals are doing. There's a lot of talk about what they're doing, but there hasn't been that much kind of academic research trying to pin down what exactly is the kind of causes and effects here uh, of what's happening. Now, um, my expert lies in transparency, but also uh, British politics. But Stephanie um, also has expertise in looking at um, the wonderful world of state legislatures um, in the United States and vote rec voting records there. So Stephanie's the person with the data and I have a more kind of qualitative approach. So we're hoping to get some at least tentative answers to some of these complex questions. People are always saying technology does X and Y to politics and it changes changes Y and Z. And it's difficult to do. So we're hoping to get some firm answers to what sort of effect it has and how that is or isn't kind of changing democracy around us at a time when everybody's talking about democracy becoming a, a different thing or being fragile or under threat. Thank you, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question from Anne. Uh, Anne, would you like to say your, come off mute and say your question out loud? Jo Josh Anne has asked whether you could read it out on her behalf. Oh, sorry, yes. I uh, should have read it first before uh, offering. But yes, happy to do so, Anne. Um, okay. When considering how data can drive democracy and hold people in power accountable, how do you counter all the misinformation that is being put out in the public sphere these days? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. And that's definitely something that I think we are all seeing organizations and even ourselves struggle with. Um, I know from the data perspective in this project, we use some algorithms and such to try to track out bots, for example, on Twitter, who may just be posting a bunch of nonsense. Um, However, that doesn't get at this kind of fundamental problem about people posting misinformation and how we get them to not read it and consume it and believe it. And so um, that's, that's a tough one. You know, on the, the organizational side of things, we do have little armies of researchers trying to sift through this. And whether that be a qualitative approach, you know, sitting down, reading through it, trying to make sense of, of all the information that's out there or the bot approach that I just mentioned, we're all working to try to get there. Um, but this is one of the things that we saw and one of the things that MP seemed to be most frustrated with is this idea of, well, yeah, you see this number or you see this vote record, but, you know, without some, some bigger context or narrative around that, particularly from the MP themselves, it, it is taken out of context. 
And, and we've seen MPs have to justify that, which is a good thing. That's a good thing for democracy, in my opinion. Um, but I don't know that there's a straightforward answer. Um, and I'll let Ben jump in here, too, because I know that he, he's looked at this. But um, we're, we're getting there, basically, trying to help you know, alleviate that process. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. I mean, one of the tricky things about the discussion around misinformation and, and fake news is that it is both simultaneously something that is happening, but also something that is being weaponized. Uh, there was a fascinating study into, um, you know, uh, untruths around COVID and a study looking at media all around the world concluded that the one biggest purveyor of misinformation and fake news about COVID was Donald Trump, the president of the United States. Um, and so it's very tricky because also Donald Trump, if you think about when he was president, also weaponized the idea of something else being fake news, which makes it, it complex to untangle. Um, and look at, at the uh, Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday when uh, it was said that Labour voted in a particular way against nurses' pay rise, but that vote never happened. And what does one do at that point to try and ascertain the reality? And I think actually this project sits on this core because we have heard complaints from MPs that this is misrepresentation or in even some cases um, untrue. I suppose the counter to that is actually one of the other effects, as Stephanie said, is to make politicians justify and explain more. And that can only be um, a good thing for democracy. My sense is that the sort of untruths and the misinformation has always existed around politics and democracy has always had, as a number of people said, a, an uneasy relationship with the truth in all sorts of ways. But I do think it is definitely accelerated now with the way in which um, news and information and misinformation is kind of drawn together. Thank you very much. Okay, I don't see any uh, questions in right now. So I'm going to take my opportunity to ask a, a question while well, maybe others uh, mull things over. But uh, your topic and your, and, your, and your talk really reminded me of this book I read a few years back called uh, The Future of Freedom, uh, A Liberal Democracy at Home and Abroad. And it, it wasn't a very good book, but it did have a passage in it that has really stayed with me for uh, many years. So I kind of want to uh, discussed a bit now, but uh, it featured then Senator. So, pardon, it's, this is a U.S. focus. So, uh, Stephanie, you might know more about the the, the topic. Uh, so, it featured then Senator, uh, now President Joe Biden, uh, stating that the increase in transparency within voting in the Senate, so like how senators vote on particular bills, uh, has actually increased the power of industry lobbyists. So he said that before they could vote with their conscience, but now they were scrutinized by their more moneyed backers to sort of do their bidding. So I guess the question is, um, how much stake do you put in claims like this, that increased transparency can actually lead to increased power of wealthy stakeholders, uh, possibly at the detriment of the many of democracy? Yeah, that's a really great question. This is something that's been mulled over, particularly in the U.S. context. Um, my background is in U.S. political science has been stated. Um, and this is something that kind of gets at that last slide I talked about where, yeah, transparency is a really good thing. We want the public involved. That's part of the democratic process. But at the same time, is this stimming the efforts of lawmakers to actually get their job done or, or thwarting the will of the people because lawmakers have to listen to or they have in their ear these wealthy donors, for example. And I think that that's a really kind of, you know, complex question to, to unpack simply because I think it's both. I think that transparency is good to a degree, um, but transparency starts to be problematic when lawmakers can't get their job done or they're beholden to the pocketbook of somebody else, which is problematic. And we saw this sort of play out in the UK as well. Um, 
there's a political scientist, her name is Sophie, uh, her last name escapes me now, but she's at Harvard. She's from the UK originally, she's at Harvard now. And she put together this huge donor network with funds that the UK government was using and giving to people who are connected to the lobbying world. And there's this interactive tool that's out there and you can track these data. And it's really astounding how, you know, close some of these industrial people are with people in government and how they're getting that money allocated to them for COVID relief. Um, and this story has also broken now in the New York Times, and I think The Guardian has covered it. But the point is, is, yeah, because these lobbyists and people in, in industry know what's going on, they can weasel their way in, so to speak, and get closer to the lawmaking process, which can be a good thing, but it can also be a really bad thing, as the kind of COVID relief money in the UK example shows. Um, ben, do you have anything to add? Uh, I think it, it underlies the point that it's very important, two things. One, who is using this data? And secondly, not necessarily the same answer, who members and legislators think is using the data? Um, and uh, we're quite interested in this question because in the US it's well known that lobbyists have scorecards and, and, and target particular uh, legislators. It's more difficult in the UK because so little is known about uh, lobbying and we're actually racking our brains at the minute about how to actually see if this is happening. Our suspicion is that lobbying takes a rather different form in the UK. It's more about kind of um, old networks rather than the kind of direct corporate lobbying that we get in the US. Um, so what's this space for if we find the answer? But also I'd argue, uh, just being the classic kind of political scientist here, it depends who's lobbying as well. Remember, climate change is one of the great um, lobbying successes of the past 10 years. So much may depend on who's both watching, but also who's doing the lobbying. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you. Yeah, it kind of underlines that, you know, transparency is great, but then again, without the ability for participation uh, it, with wider groups, uh, it may only just benefit um, certain smaller groups. Uh, we have we have another question in the chat. How big was the population or sample used for this observational study? Yeah, so um, it kind of depends on which which data source you're talking about. Um, so, for example, for the survey for MPs, we had a little over 100 MPs who were surveyed. Um, but then we're using a host of other data from a lot of other places. And so um, on the Twitter front, for example, um, before we had access to this new API that we're using, we have academic access. And so now we can go back historically, which is great for us. But before that, we were just using our developer API that would only go back a week. And so we would collect data on voting for, say, preschool meals over the course of seven days and get back anywhere from 5,000 to say 25,000 tweets. Um, so that sample size really varies depending on the issue at hand, depending on the time frame, things like that. We would also gather samples from news media articles, um, kind of using the same methodology where we targeted a certain period in time, a certain issue that was at stake. So um, MPs expenses, for example, when we were looking at that scandal, we would pluck out a random sample of say 100 articles and then code them using this monetary framework. And so um, the, the sample sizes really, really vary across the board and, and depend on the time frame that we're focused on. Um, and if that doesn't answer your question, please feel free to, to ask me some more. Great, thanks. Um, I have another kind of follow-up question to what was mentioned before. Uh, you were pointing out sort of who is using this data and, and why. Kind of want to spin the question on you and ask who isn't using the data uh, that maybe should. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, some of the responses from the MPs and elsewhere would be they wish that more kind of constituents and voters would use it directly. Uh, one of the hopes, of course, both for transparency uh, from its inception, 
um, but also particularly for this new technology, it, is that your, inverted commas, average voter would use this data. And this would be great for politicians because a bit like with the arrival of things like social media, it gives people direct access to what's happening that isn't mediated by the media with all its biases and things. So that would probably be one argument. Um, but of course, I'd always say, you know, a bit like with freedom of information and lots of other transparency reforms, um, the politicians who push it hope that there's some imaginary, objective, rational user who's going to look at it in a clear, objective fashion. But one of the other conclusions that's coming out of this study is that all data are political in every sense. And most of the data is used in a political way, whether it's to lobby for a certain issue, you know, whether it's to use to call for a certain reform, whether it's to question or even support um, a particular politician. We found some wonderful examples, just to, just to give this one up, of um, Jeremy Corbyn's voting record. And it's been used both to criticise him, to show that he's, as, as one headline put it, as anti-European as Margaret Thatcher, or to praise him, to show that he was ahead of so many issues um, when others were lagging behind during the days of New Labour. So it's actually really difficult because the hope is that the objective rational user would use it but i'm not sure that there's such a thing in politics and, and can i also add then i think that's exactly right that um i i would think lawmakers should also be using these data they should be in, engaged in this self-monitoring and we've found evidence of that it's a little bit harder to suss out whether that's happening to get that out of them right they hate to admit that they're out there coming through these data themselves um, particularly because oftentimes it means they're trying to justify something they've done. But I do think that lawmakers could definitely use this to their advantage and maybe get ahead of constituent questions or things like that. And that would be really, really good um, from a democratic perspective, at least. Great. Thank you very much. I think we might have time for one more question before we have to wrap up, but uh, someone please please feel free to tell me if I'm wrong. Um, so if there's no one else in the chat, I do have one more, but I'll give it a second. No, okay, so um, what have you guys noticed a sort of international angle on this? So maybe data users that are outside of the country of the uh, data sources, uh, you know, for constituents and, you know, what that might be used for, you know, on, on one end you could, imagine things quite dramatically from some sort of foreign meddling or, or, or trade impacts, but it might be something else that's uh, sort of more benign around uh, sort of academ academia or, or even just sort of lay people and, and, and vacationing. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious if, there, if you've sort of uh, segmented that at all. Yeah, I'll take the first stab at this and then I'll let Ben jump in. Um, we actually have some, uh, some website data, monthly statistics data from um, the, the website They Work For You. And we were able to see where geographically lots of hits were coming from um, and, and see you know, which pages people were hitting the most. And there were some pretty interesting findings there. And I would have to go back through to my analysis and, and see uh, in, in particular what that was. But there were countries um, you know, such as India, countries in Africa, hits from the US that were totally unexpected. Um, on, on kind of big salient issues that you would think only us in the UK would be concerned about. For example, I think um, the internal market bill is one of those maybe, um, and uh, a few other big ticket issues where people from all over the world were plugged in 
trying to see how people were voting and what, what was going on with the issue. And so that was a really interesting finding that um, I thought was, you know, in need of further investigation. Um, there were a few instances where I felt like mm, maybe this was a bot because there would just be some, some clicking that was off the charts. And we can't really get at that. I have no idea what's going on there other than my data scientist mind is saying something's not right here with these data. Um, but there is a global perspective, particularly on issues that might affect other portions of the world, of course, and issues that are just salient. Brexit, of course, is one of those. Ben, would you like to come in on that at all? or? Uh, if I could just add on the academic question, it's really interesting how academics are quite big users of the data and, and big experimenters with the data, and it comes from all sorts of angles. And just to give you two examples, there's one uh, academic, Chris Hanaretti, who's done some really interesting um, work looking at, you maybe noticed a controversy around uh, the Towns Fund from the Conservative government and questions about whether this Towns Fund was actually targeted at particular Conservative-held seats around the country. He's done uh, research in the past on a similar thing. And somebody else, around the time that Brexit was looking really, really sticky and difficult for Boris Johnson, there was a claim that um, Boris Johnson was going to create a mass of pro-Brexit members of the House of Lords and force them all to go in the House of Lords and make them vote in favour of Brexit if the House of Lords ever blocked it. This wasn't going to happen, but this is what was being discussed. And one enterprising academic um, calculated quite how many members of the House of Lords he'd need to make to swing the vote, and he calculated. I think it would be about 700 or so new members of the House of Lords. So doing all sorts of interesting things with it. And I think it's people all around the world just seeing the data and thinking, here's something very interesting I can do. Great, thanks. And we have um, one audience question. So uh, Gitishu, if you would like to uh, unmute and, and say your question, uh, go ahead. Hello, my name is Geta Cho. Uh, by profession, I'm a statistician. That is why I'm asking all these uh, statistical questions. Uh, well, the, the observational study is quite interesting. But uh, have you looked at the different groups, male, female, or ethnic group, with respect with respect to the different responses that you have got? I would I would have actually looked at association if there is any association between gender and particular uh, response. So that that would have been very interesting. I don't know. We might have looked at it, but the observational studies that you have have presented here. Uh, I don't know, you, you, you might have used it for, for uh, your own purpose, but as a statistician, I would have looked at the, response, the, the association, if there is any association between gender, ethnicity, and, and, and other factors. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I, I think that's an excellent idea, and that's something that we're working on right now. For example, the YouGov survey, there are certainly differences between genders and, and we only have the top level numbers right now. We don't have the raw data, um, but from the top level, we are seeing a split among females and males. For example, on that first question, females were more negative about how sites like They Work For You impact um, their day-to-day, -day, whereas generally they think that it's better for MPs um, and, and men actually had a more negative uh, perception of that. Um, we've not run T-tests. We've not done any sort of regression analysis or anything like that. Um, but that's something that we can certainly do and, and certainly talk about, because I do think you're right. There is a, an association between these demographic variables and what that outcome of interest may be. 
Um, one thing that we run into that's kind of hard with our other data, so the Twitter data, the media coding data, things like that, is that we don't have that demographic information. Very rarely do we know when a male or a female is tweeting about, you know, these issues. And if we do, we are kind of making a, you know, a guess or a judgment call on our behalf about whether they are male or female. So that gets a little bit stickier. But on, on the survey results, at least, I think you're absolutely right. Um, accounting for some of these, these demographics uh, and making sure we're looking at associations, so the correlations between them and or accounting for those group differences is, is essential. So um, that's kind of where we are with that. Uh, if I could just, just add something there. Um, one thing to emphasize is thinking about from the user's perspective, how hard it is um, to get uh, much information about who are using these things. Some of it's by inference, some of it's by mentions, but it's actually uh, one of the reasons we're doing a survey is to try and find this out. Um, we found that in the past, when you look at kind of similar tools like Freedom Information um, and other studies of participation, in terms of who are using it, there is always a pretty pronounced gender gap. And the average user it has exactly the kind of same identity traits as the people who turn up for local government meetings and things like that with the same biases, which is a serious problem and a serious issue that I think quite a few regulators and other bodies are, are aware of. If you flip it over and think about gender and um, those who are being watched, the MPs and peers, again, evidence from elsewhere shows us that there is a pretty severe bias. During the MPs' expenses, female MPs were more likely to be questioned about their expenses and more likely um, to step down. I suppose there are positive stories here, though, because as we saw from when Stephanie was talking about uh, when there was this supposed list of lazy MPs published, actually the long-term consequences of that was to create the proxy voting system for MPs who were uh, either on maternity leave or had got very young children. So there was a positive outcome of that, which in turn would have positive outcomes for how people think about um, people who identify as female who are politicians. So good things can come from, but there's gender bias both in use, we suspect, and definitely gender bias in terms of coverage. Thank you very much. So I've been told we have more time for questions, which is great. Uh, this one is from Matt Whitby. Um, how much of this data has good forecasting power? Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's an excellent question. Um, I guess I, a question back to you perhaps is what we would be forecasting. Um, that would definitely play a role in, in um, you know, kind of my answer there. We've not done any forecasting, to be quite honest, with these data. Right now, it's been very exploratory in nature and qualitative on a lot of fronts. Um, so we've not uh, um, employed those methods, but um, that's something we, we certainly can look into. I, I'm also not familiar with the Good Judgment Project. Um, so I've, I've jotted a note down on that. Um, and yeah, so get to choose point here is that with, with the data we have, we might have limited forecasting power. Sorry to jump back. Um, but on the Good Judgment Project, that's something I'll look into. Um, and I don't know, Ben, if you had anything to add to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, one of the things about this study is there's so many mixed methods all combined together that I, I wouldn't have much confidence that it forecasting. What we'd hope to be able to do is say into the future, you can see that these sorts of trends in terms of how it's being used, it's likely to surge and develop interest around this issue and that issue. But I wouldn't say beyond that anything uh, any more rigorous. And anyone who knows me would also say that as a, as a as a uh, teacher of British politics, I think I've predicted almost every single election and referendum since about 2005 wrongly. So 
um, I don't have much confidence in the in the judgment there, and particularly with British politics in, in in such a state of flux. But it would be interesting, and I am familiar with the uh, Good Judgment Project, which is a kind of crowdsource project, isn't it? And um, developed by people in the US who, who who crowdsource ideas around elections and significant events. So it is it is very interesting. Thank you both for that, and and thank you for the questions. Um... If that's all, I think we'll have to wrap up for the day. But uh, on behalf of the ODI, uh, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our speakers, Stephanie and Ben, as well as to all of you out there uh, asking questions, watching the lecture, uh, either live or in the future. So uh, happy Friday, everybody, and stay safe. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.